0: Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those
1: two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee? Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee.
0: Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach
1: to Roddenberry. Welcome to episode 15 of Unknown Orbits, Mother of Invention by Tom Godwin. I'm Patrick Baird. And I'm Steve Reitze. Today we're going to be talking about the short story by Tom Godwin, Mother of Invention. This was published in Astounding Magazine in December 1953. It was the second story that he ever published. Two stories later, after this, he published the story, The Cold Equations which in my opinion is one of the greatest science fiction stories of all time. It's very well known, very famous. It's the story of a stowaway on a spaceship and the tragic consequences of that. It's widely considered a classic piece of science fiction. This was a, f- a little bit before that and not quite as good. Uh, it's an interesting, typical, astounding magazine story of the time period. It starts out with a henpecked starport worker who's trying to uh, check all the equipment on the spaceship before it takes off. But due to the extreme heat inside the engine room, he passes out while inspecting a particular piece of equipment. And as a result, he leaves the cover of this piece of equipment slightly loose. Nobody notices. And then a bunch of scientists and entrepreneurs climb aboard the spaceship shortly thereafter and blast off to the most distant part of the galaxy to try to discover new worlds. And in the process of discovering new worlds, make themselves rich and influential and powerful and famous. They get out to the far reaches of the galaxy, and due to this problem where the loose piece of equipment, they go through a series of events that causes the cover to fly off. And eventually, there's a small explosion on board the spacecraft as they're trying to land on one of these planets, and the ship crashes. There's no way that that ship in its crash condition is going to be able to get them back off of the planet. But in this particular case, because it's a 1950s astounding magazine story, of course the characters aren't terribly interesting or strange or unusual. As a matter of fact, I have a hard time when I was reading this story trying to keep them separated. There's two characters who were different. One was the old professor, who was literally, that's all he was. He was an old professor, and then there was the slightly mysterious tough guy. He's an engineer, I think. The other ones were all scientists who worked or studied with this professor. And they brought this engineer on board to help make sure things run smoothly. And he was a mysterious, tough, square-jawed sort of a guy. Other than that, there was absolutely no character development whatsoever in this story.
0: Well, that's something you have to learn when you're learning how to write.
1: Yeah, and, and when you work for an editor like John Campbell who's probably not encouraging you to spend a lot of time developing your characters. And in this case, as we get to the rest of the story, I can see where this was an attractive story to John Campbell for a couple of reasons. We might as well do that. Let's get to the rest of the story, as they say. So they crash land on this world, and they quickly find out that the primary mineral on this world is diamonds. There's diamonds laying all over the ground everywhere. Diamonds the size of your fist. And what makes things worse is there's diamond dust everywhere. So all of their equipment eventually is destroyed and wears out because of the diamond dust getting into everything. Any piece of moving equipment is eventually destroyed by the diamond dust. They're struggling with the problem of, how do we somehow reassemble the spaceship and get off of this planet? Getting off the planet is one thing, but once they get off the planet, they have two things that they can do. They can try to re-energize their hyperdrive, and I can't remember the specific name. Of, it was a different name than hyperdrive, but it was a similar idea, and zoom out of there and get back to civilized space, or they can send out a distress signal and hope that somebody will come and rescue them. So that's a problem-solving story. That's part one of why I think John W. Campbell... Like this story and bought it.
0: I've been making a list.
1: <laughs> we should. The Encyclopedia of Problem Solving Stories by John W. Campbell. No, I mean, the list of reasons why he liked this. Let me just finish the story summation and then we'll talk some more about the elements of the story that were attractive to Mr. Campbell. As I said, it's one problem after another and they solve one problem and another problem comes along. And then, if things weren't bad enough, they find out that the planet they're on is going to crash into its sun or come too close to the sun, and they're all going to be burned alive. So they've got like seven months to find a way to get off the planet. And all they do in seven months is completely invent an entire new form of propulsion, some sort of anti-gravity theory that they manage to prove and make effective in seven months, which is a little bit of a stretch. But they do. And then there's a punchline, which I'm not going to give away. There's a punchline to the story, and everybody lives happily ever after. It's a problem-solving story through and through. That's really the main aspect of it. The other part of it that I think that Campbell would have been interested in was that it was an interesting technical problem. This idea that any machine with moving parts would be destroyed by the diamond dust.
0: That is a really nice detail. How do you
1: build machines that are impervious to the diamond dust, that don't involve moving parts? So that was part of the story. And that's that's exactly the sort of element I would think that John W. Campbell would find interesting.
0: Can I give my list? Oh, please do. Elements of the story that he would have liked. The competent man. Yes. Engineering. Yep. Featureless women.
1: Oh, there's no women in this story. Oh, well, <laughs> so okay. So that's even then... better. <laughs>
0: and lastly, vacuum tubes.
1: There probably were some vacuum tubes involved. I don't remember vacuum tubes, but... So it is. It is is 100%... It's a classic, astounding magazine, problem-solving story. It's well-written. It's, like I said, the characters are so flat, they're almost interchangeable. It's an interesting problem. Their solution is highly improbable, but interesting. The author does manage to string you along quite a bit with all of the complications and problems that he presents and how they overcome them one by one. So it's well worth reading. I can recommend it if that's the sort of story that you're interested in. A little bit of background on Tom Godwin. There was a lot of geological discussion in this story, a lot of talking about different minerals and the aspects of different minerals and the components of different minerals. At one point, they have to find uranium fuel for the ship. They have to find pitch blend, I think it was. There was another element that they needed as well. So a lot of the story is... A couple of these characters going out into the desert and climbing the mountains and trying to find the minerals they need for the spaceship and it's the failure to find uranium and silicium that leads them to have to invent a whole new way of propelling spaceships involving anti-gravity so interestingly mr. Godwin spent a significant part of his adult life living as a prospector with his father in Arizona in a fairly remote part of Arizona I'm sure that's where that came in. He had quite a bit of geological knowledge based on his time living out in the desert as a prospector. And you can see that the landscape of this planet is fairly desert-like, so I can really see how this was a reflection from his own life. And Mr. Godwin had a very unhappy life. He may have killed his own sister at age five, playing with a handgun.
0: Really? Yeah.
1: He was playing with a handgun, and somehow she wound up being shot dead when he was five. His mother died early. He had to live with his horrible, abusive father most of his adult life. He developed a spinal condition that left him hunchbacked. He did meet the love of his life, though, somewhere in his 30s, late 30s, maybe early 40s, and she was a wonderful woman. They were very happy together, even though he was a big drinker. That was a problem in their marriage, but she stayed with him anyway. There was an article I found out there written by the stepdaughter, who was very complimentary, said he was a very good man, a kind man, but he had this drinking problem. And then in the early 1970s, his wife died tragically of a disease, and pretty much from that point forward, he just drank himself straight to death. So not a very happy life, but in addition to the story that we're talking about tonight, which is a fine story in its own way, he did write one of the greatest science fiction stories of all times with the cold equations. So what are your thoughts with the story?
0: I remember reading the story in my late teens when I first discovered pulp magazines, and I think we've discussed this before. It is kind of a cozy. When you have an enclosed situation and you're solving a problem, I, I love those stories. I also like the idea of tackling an impossible problem and somehow getting to it.
1: Speaking of which, there's another story that this, the Mother of Invention, reminded me of, one that you're very familiar with, one that I know is a favorite of yours and a favorite of mine. And this is not a science fiction story, but it does fall chronologically into our purview. And that is the classic 1965 film Flight of the Phoenix starring Jimmy Stewart. Of course, yes, absolutely. Uh, Which is, what is it about? It's about a bunch of men whose vehicle has crashed in the desert, And they have to rebuild it in order to survive. So it's pretty much the same story, much better told than this story, than Mr. Godwin's tale. I love that story. And for me, it's a great example of the sort of story you don't see in movies anymore, which is a bunch of men up against a tough problem and they fight with each other, but they fight the external problem and the external enemies. And they find a way to band together at the end and triumph.
0: They find a way to cooperate, which is a major element of the film. Yeah,
1: not only men working on a problem and fixing a problem, but learning how to work together. That's great drama. For any of you who are not familiar with the story of the Flight of the Phoenix, Jimmy Stewart is the pilot of a cargo plane that is flying miners and mining equipment uh, across Africa. I don't remember if they were leaving an oil field or going to an oil field, but they were in transit. Something happens, I don't remember exactly what, but they wind up crashing their twin-engine cargo plane in the desert, and things look pretty bleak. They're miles from anywhere. There's no. There's very little water. Hostile Bedouins are menacing them. They actually kill a few of their crew members. And so they're really under the gun out here in the middle of nowhere. And on board the plane is a German aviation engineer who says, We can rebuild this plane and fly it out of here. Great actor, by the way. Yeah, Hardy Kruger. Terrific actor, playing like a sympathetic German in World War II. He was always a guy who was kind of a you know, reluctant Nazi or something like that. In
0: 1946, they were all
1: Oh, yeah. Nazis. Everybody was. Oh, I was not a Nazi. No, I was never in the party. <laughs> I went to the rallies, but you know, it's what everyone did. You know, uh, I was on vacation for most of. It. Yes, <laughs> yes. I I had an injury, so anyway, they agree to his plan to to rebuild the airplane with one motor, and just tie themselves to the wings, basically, and fly out of there. And they do, and they succeed, and it's wonderful. It's got a wonderful cast, in addition to Jimmy Stewart. Ernest Borgnine is in it. Um, who's his co pilot? It's the guy that was in Jurassic Park. So Richard Attenborough. He was oh he was oh, his co pilot. God, I never put that together. Yeah, he honestly. was the co pilot. Yeah, um, I would have
0: said he was in the Great Escape. Well, he was. I mean,
1: that's the comparison I would have made. It's from that same era. And it's a lot like The Great Escape, where it's literally no women. In Flight of the Phoenix, one of the characters has a dream sequence where he dreams of a belly dancer. Oh yeah. yeah. And that's the only woman in this movie. Great Escape, same thing. I don't think there was any women in that movie, except there was a really attractive French underground... Someone
0: in the village when they went to work there or something? Yeah, she was
1: helping to rescue the prisoners. I don't know, maybe I'm Mm -hmm. thinking of another movie. Yeah, so it's guys. And it's the same thing, great cast. Great Escape had one of the greatest casts ever. This has a great cast. Trying to think of some of the other actors that were in it. Something tells me George Kennedy, but I think I'm wrong about that. The guy who played Lawrence of the Desert... um, Peter O'Toole, no, he was not in here. That was, no, no I'm No, he sorry. was not in this movie. Mustache
0: romantic guy.
1: Oh, Albert Finney. No, yeah. he had an accent. He was a foreign guy, but he was... A, Dr. Zhivagyo. Omar Sharif? Yeah. No, he was not in this movie. Sure he was. No, no, Omar Sharif was not in this movie. Sorry.
0: Okay, okay. The, the guy they get when Omar Sharif's not available was in this movie.
1: Well, that could be. The guy I'm thinking of, Dan Duryea. he was in all these great... Noir movies. He was remember the movie Winchester seventy three? Yeah. Where Jimmy Stewart loses his rifle. The whole movie's about Jimmy Stewart getting his rifle back and Dan Duray is like this sort of charismatic bad guy who winds up getting the rifle for a while. He's not the main bad guy in the movie, but he's like the secondary bad guy. He's a terrific actor. I, there are so many really good noir movies that he starred in in the 1950s. But we're drifting a little. We are. It was a terrific cast. There were a couple other British actors in this movie that were really good as well, really top-notch British actors. But getting back to the main point, it's a story about men, like we you said, men learning to work together to overcome a problem. And that's good drama for me is you have to have internal conflict and in this in flight of the phoenix the internal conflict is jimmy stewart isn't sure he's doing the right thing
0: well i mean he has a crisis of uh uh, faith
1: there's a crisis of faith moment which is i'm not going to give it away because it's one of the best parts of the movie so you've got an internal drama going on with jimmy Stewart. You've got all these different characters with different approaches to the situation. Ernest Borgnine goes batshit crazy at one point and wanders off into the desert in the middle of the night and dies. When I was a kid and I first saw the movie, I didn't understand
0: what his character was. But as an adult, I see that they were trying to portray someone with severe PTSD.
1: Yeah, I think that was part of it. So you've got all these different characters reacting differently, some of them in very extreme ways. Some of them want to give up and just die. And somehow Jimmy Stewart has to rally everyone together and try to get them to contribute to the effort to get the plane rebuilt. And then there's the external threat from the Arab Bedouins who are trying to kill them. There's the additional threat of the environment. There's no water. They're dying of thirst. So he's got all these levels of conflict that make it for a really solid piece of storytelling. And that's, to me, that's what Mother of Invention kind of lacked. I mean, to his credit, Godwin put a lot of obstacles in the path of his characters, and that was good. He kept making things worse. Every time they thought they were getting ahead on something, something would go wrong, and suddenly they had to start all over again. There was a lot of points in the story, Mother of Invention, where they had to come up with a new plan. The old plan was completely shot, and now they got to come up with a whole new plan, And that was pretty good. That was good. But it's not as good as drawing drama out of your characters. That's where not only this story, Mother Invention, failed for me, but I think a lot of the astounding and other classic golden age science fiction that didn't put any emphasis into the characters. They missed out on great opportunities to create additional levels of conflict and drama in your story by not putting any time and effort into your characters.
0: I take the side of the writers that they're still learning, and science fiction, especially from Campbell, really was about set up an interesting problem and see what you can do with it.
1: And to be honest, maybe that's what the audience wanted back then. You know, maybe the, the biggest audience for science fiction was nerdy guys, technical guys, people that loved a good technical problem So Campbell's Astounding Magazine flourished for a very long time, for many decades. You know, there's something to that. Campbell knew his audience, and he guided his writers and picked his writers and picked the stories that he thought would appeal to his audience. But we can't forget that that at the same time, 1953, there was another major magazine called Galaxy that was not catering to that type of audience. They were writing stories that were much more nuanced. They were writing stories that had better focus on characters that were more literary in their qualities. So there was a market for that as well. But I just thought when you're talking about a problem-solving story, adding additional layers of conflict, human conflict into the story makes for a better story than just a plain old problem-solving approach.
0: Yeah. Yeah, when I was younger, I was all about the problem-solving well, and course. I would get I would get annoyed by having too much humanity in the story. Oh,
1: sure. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Maybe that's part of the calculation for Campbell was he had a lot of younger readers, and he knew that younger readers didn't have patience for all that human relations stuff. Because let's face it, when you're 17 years old, a lot of young guys are completely ignorant about how to proceed with human relations. That's something you learn... When you go off to college or when you join the military and you experience life and you get your first job and you have your first boss and you meet a girl and you fall in love and you get married and you have kids, that's a process. So the science fiction fan of age 40 is probably quite different than the science fiction fan of age 19. That may be an aspect to it. I would certainly accept that. But I'm just saying, as a writer... I hate to miss the opportunity to add conflict to my stories.
0: Well, you are correct. The more complexity, the more interesting it is.
1: Any other thoughts on Flight of the Phoenix or problem-solving
0: stories? Earlier, I did want to say that you can go to the Internet Archive and bring up the first issue of Galaxy Magazine. And on the back cover, there's an editorial statement by H.L. Gold on the difference between science fiction as it was and
1: how he wanted to publish it. Yeah, that's an important milestone in science fiction, his statement of principle, which I believe he was decrying space opera, that type of story of the bug-eyed monsters and the ladies in the brass braziers. and he used the term super science, and he was dismissive of the term super science. I know we're going to get to H.L. Gold and Galaxy Magazine in a future podcast. We're definitely going to be talking about his influence and the influence of that magazine on the genre But you're right. And I think he was aiming squarely at this type of story, the super science story, which sometimes has a number of different interpretations and meanings. But I think it's generally the story where the science is everything. And this kind of falls into that category. The whole idea of all this talk about geological science and almost the scientific process, they go through excruciating detail on all of the different experiments that they make trying to come up with this new anti-gravity drive. So absolutely, this would fall probably into H.L. Gold's super science category, that he said he was trying to do something different.
0: And also with the premiere issue of Fantasy and Science Fiction in 1949, that made the top three magazines, which were all... They were all different from each other, but had a little bit of overlap. It just makes for the perfect situation.
1: That's not to say that I'm willing to bet that Galaxy Magazine published their share of super science or problem-solving stories along the way. And I'm sure that there were some stories in Astounding that had better characters and focused a little more on the human element but there were distinctions between those magazines.
0: Galaxy printed The Demolished Man, which, if I'm not thinking of the wrong story, is very super science.
1: Yeah, I'm willing to bet they did. And fantasy and science fiction, I'm willing to bet they published their share as well. Again, that's something we will be talking about in future podcasts. Those three magazines were extremely important in their own right. And I would say, having a market for fiction that featured a more literary approach that was not all about the science. We've talked about this before. There was a new generation of science fiction writers that came up after World War II, and many of them were not technical people. They were not scientists and engineers. Like the first generation of science fiction writers were state college graduates who had a background in studying literature, and they were writers first. And having a market for their type of fiction, meant that you had people like Richard Matheson and Ray Bradbury able to have a flourishing career in the 1950s. So there was room for both.
0: This does bring up something else I was thinking about the other day. Sure. I've been reading up on Campbell, and there's a huge difference between how they came up with ideas then and how people come up with ideas now, and the main reason is because science fiction has existed for a while. Right. So in the 1930s and 40s, Science fiction hadn't been around a long time, and I've been reading accounts of conversations between writers, and they were really philosophical, and that's not the way we approach making a science fiction story now. And I can just see Campbell saying to Godwin, okay, I've been thinking, what if there was a planet where it was covered in diamonds? What would be the result of that? People land on it. What happens? Give me a story.
1: Yeah, that sounds very much like John W. Campbell. He probably had a whole file drawer full of story ideas that he would just pull one out and hand it to a writer and say, go for it.
0: I may not be making my point very clear. Uh, I wish I could remember the story about Heinlein that made it clear that they were really getting philosophical first, then saying, what can you do with it?
1: Well, we'll circle back to that. I've read the book that you're referring to. It's a terrific book. It's not just about John W. Campbell. It's also about Heinlein and Asimov and L. Ron Hubbard that whole circle. So it's a fascinating book with a treasure trove of information about that period of science fiction. We're kind of circling back to the center point here, which is John W. Campbell wanting a certain type of story, and possibly in this case, like you said, he pulled an idea out, The Planet of Diamonds, handed it to Godwin and said, well, what do you think? And Godwin being a prospector, it was like the perfect story for him. It's like, oh, I can do a lot with this. And probably was exactly the right person to write that story for the very reason of his background, living in the desert and being a prospector.
0: And if the story did come about in this way, he also did something that I think is good advice to a writer. You, you have a basic idea and then you stop and you say, okay, and then what? You, you don't go with the first idea. You say, okay, and then what? And then what? And
1: then what? My golden rule of plotting is plot is the result of asking questions about your characters. You ask questions like, what would my character do in this situation? How would my character respond to this thing happening to them? What would my character do if their goal was completely thwarted and there is no way of them succeeding? How would they respond? And answering those questions gives you your story. It tells you where you're going to go. And again, getting back to my gripe about the story, where the only question being asked in this story is, how do we get this damn spaceship off the ground? That was the only question that was asked. Yeah, you had this one tough guy, and they portrayed him as this mysterious tough guy, but his toughness never really came out in the story. It's almost as if Godwin was like, well, I I need to make these characters different from one another. I've already got the old professor. I know, I'll put a mysterious tough guy in here. And that's as much thought as he put into it. In my mind, developing an idea like what would happen if a ship landed on a planet of diamonds That's only the starting point, is what would happen to the ship. You know, there's 10 different directions you can go with that story. Quick, think of one. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to try to think of one. Planet of Diamonds. The ship didn't crash. The crew members begin fighting among themselves because they go crazy with the idea of hauling away all these diamonds. And then some technical problem comes up where they can only haul so many pounds of diamonds because their fuel supply is critical and they have to jettison weight and it's like the treasure of the sierra madre ah so we, you have a treasure of the sierra madre story where at the end of the story they they barely blast off the planet and they have to leave all the diamonds behind and they're destitute the end there there's mine there's my planet of the diamond story okay. where's yours
0: they don't crash they land on the planet of the diamonds and they're all happy and exploring and There's discussion of, well, we can't take too many diamonds away or we're going to crash the market. But they take some, they put it in the hold, and they're still discussing when it's discovered that there's primitive life on the planet, a lichen that has evolved to be able to eat diamonds. And as a result of being able to eat diamonds, it can eat through anything, and it slowly starts to destroy the ship, starting from the cargo hold out. And they have to figure out a way to stop it or to contact people for help. And maybe they do contact people for help, and they discover that this has happened before. And there's a policy that we can't pick up anyone from this planet because the lichen cannot be allowed to get
1: off the planet. That's a really good idea. And it's a different kind of a problem-solving idea. And it has the bleak ending of the cold equations. I like bleak endings. I really do. Yeah, that's terrific. I love the idea of these guys floating in space, doomed to their ship being chewed apart from the inside. I love that. I love that final image. See, why couldn't we have been around to, to work for John W. Campbell? We would have come up with a lot of better stories, and some of his writers did. He probably would have said, oh, take all that people stuff out of there. Do you recall his
0: working environment, though? <laughs> it's like a closet in the back of a warehouse? Yeah, pretty much. We have each experienced working like that.
1: Yes. I remember when I felt like the guy who lost his stapler, and my desk was shoved in a corner somewhere. Was that the typesetting job? No, no, this was another job I had. They were trying to make me quit and discourage me, so they shoved my desk into a corner, and I felt like Milton with his red stapler (laughs) down in the basement. (laughs) So I don't have any further thoughts on this story, do you? Nope, that about covers it. All right, well, that's it for Episode 15. Please tune in next week for another journey into the Golden Age of Science Fiction. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. Keep watching the sky.
0: That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits.
1: Two guys from Milwaukee.